Hi, welcome to the Penis Project podcast. This is the place to come to find out everything you've always wanted to know about men's health but were too embarrassed to ask. Join physiotherapist Dr. Joe Milios and sexologist nurse practitioner Melissa Hadley-Barrett as they talk to real men and the experts about men's private parts. Have a burning question you really want to know the answer to? Please subscribe to our website at thepenisproject.org and just ask us. The greater the length, while the greater the strength, the more time I've got for you. There's too much talking, texting, tweeting, posting. Too much noise altogether. In silence is strength and peace and space. Imagine silence forever. The Penis Project podcast is proudly supported and sponsored by PROST, Exercise for Prostate Cancer, and the RS Health Penile Rehabilitation Program. PROST is a not-for-profit charity set up by myself in 2012 that aims to help men exercise during their experience with prostate cancer. If you want to know anything more about PROST, including our online service and USB product now available, please just go to prost.com.au. Hi, I'm Melissa Hadley-Barrett and I designed the Penile Rehabilitation Program to help men recover from prostate cancer. It's an online program built on decades worth of knowledge and experience and practice. It's the only one of its kind in the world and it actually works. So if you've been diagnosed with prostate cancer and want to get your penis working again as quickly as possible, and why wouldn't you, then visit penilerehabilitationprogram.com and you'll be off and running. And it only takes about 15 minutes a day. All the best with your recovery, which I promise will never be as bad as you think. November 11, 11am, 60 seconds, kids watch on the wall. In the pub, in the tab, in the cars, we remember and wonder... Good morning and welcome to the Penis Project podcast. Today is a very special day in men's health. It's November the 1st, 2022, November, the International Month of Men's Health. November was actually started by two Australian men in Melbourne in about 2004, I believe, when they got together and decided to grow a mo or a moustache. And what they wanted to do was see who could grow the best 70s-like moustache and outbed each other. And they started off a bit of a joke amongst their mates and ended up about 10 mates joining in. They then decided that it was such a good idea to grow a mo in the month of November that they called it Movember. And then moving on, they raised $20,000 that month and decided to give it to charity. And then, as I understand, it was such a hit that Movember was born. It is now the international leading charity for men's health. And Movember is today. I have always embraced Movember because it's a chance to open a conversation. The triple themes of Movember are to encourage talk and awareness of men's health topics with a focus on prostate cancer, testicular cancer, and male mental health. Today, I'm absolutely thrilled to have one of my patients who I put on the spot this morning when he came in. His name is Presley. And Presley, welcome to the Penis Project podcast. Thank you so much for letting me have this appointment go live. Oh, you're welcome, Joe. Now, Presley, we're going to get you to give us a little bit of background. I met you on the 21st of December, 2021. That's 10, year, 10 years, 10 months and 10 days ago we worked out. Can you tell us about why you came here? 
Uh, I came here because I had a uh, high PSA reading for a prostate, and uh, I'd been to a surgeon to see about um, getting it fixed or getting some sort of medication to fix it, only to find out that I had to have surgery. Uh, the surgeon who uh, re recommended Joe was great because he said you need to do all these exercises and things first uh, before surgery, which will increase the or like a better outcome after surgery, strengthen up the pelvic floor and all everything I needed to do. So I came along and got all the info, and then I went and had my surgery. I think it was about a week or two later. Yeah, so it was pretty quick. Yeah. Um, but you you actually think that it was quick, but you you had the surgery three months later on the twenty second oh. of December. So there was a four month leading time. Oh, actually three. Months. I can't count. It's I met you on the twenty first of December. Right. And you had your operation the 22nd of March. So oh, that's January, correct. February, March. You yes. had a three-month lead-in because you actually originally had an open uh, radical prostatectomy plan with a surgeon yep. who didn't do robot. You asked for a second opinion and you moved to the robot. Correct. And then you had a different surgeon and hence there was that time lag. Perfect for me because I believe it takes three months to strengthen the pelvic floor to make over the deficit of a missing prostate. So you had a good lead-in time. Can you just tell me why you thought about changing from the open to the robot? Uh, I didn't like the open because it was too invasive. And also, they uh, I've heard lots of stories about the surgeons, even though they're very good, that they can hit nerves where the robot has got a far better recovery rate. Uh, and apparently, you have less nerve damage. And the, and the re, uh, say, the... Um, the get over time from the surgery or the recovery time is far quicker and uh, less less painful. And you had that experience, didn't you? You were just I saying did. to me, tell me, tell me how, how the operation itself felt for you in the first few weeks. What, well, what the, the, the like? operation really I just found was an absolute piece of cake. You, you, you come out and you wake up in bed. I was a little bit, I wouldn't say sore, I think I was just uncomfortable in the stomach. Uh, the nurse came in and gave me two Panadol. I think I got out of theatre, I think I was the first one in in the morning, and I got out about, woke up about midday and got my two Panadol, and um, I could move around. But again, I was, I was tender and sort of felt bruised, and that was about it. Uh, I didn't have to have morphine or any other nasty drugs. And uh, it was good. I was sitting up in bed. I was, I was eating. Uh, everything was normal except I had a catheter in. How was the catheter? Uh, Lots of guys tell me they hate it, it's so uncomfortable, and other guys tell me it was nothing. So I, I don't know because I'm not a penis owner what yeah. that thing feels like being placed in situ. <laughs> it, it's, um, I've had one put in when I was awake yeah. through when I had another bladder complaint before that. And uh, I just found it was quite easy because they lubricated up you could feel it going in, but it wasn't painful. Okay, yeah. I think, like most guys, they just get scared because having something shoved up their penis yeah. is, you know, like you're going to clench your fingers and, yeah. you know, the bite on a piece of wood because of the pain, but, <laughs> you, but you don't. Yeah. It just goes in, and they, it's just so simple. It took about 10 seconds. Yeah. And they put the bag on. The, the only problem with the bag was, I suppose, at, at, at night, 
because you, you have a longer cord on at night and you have this bucket into a bucket on the floor. Yeah. And, you, and as you're turning over, you just sort of got to be careful. because a bit it, of a drag. It's just a little bit of a drag. But as far as pain goes, virtually no pain. So my dad had this operation in 2015 and he said to me, I can't sleep, this pain, this pain from the catheter is so bad. And I said, Dad, you've got a little tube of numbing gel. Put that on. He goes, what are you talking about? I don't know. I said, check out your pack from the hospital. They've given you syringes and different things in case there's a blockage. There's a little tube of gel there. And he said, no one told me. And he said, can you make sure that everybody knows they've got that gel? Did you ever use that gel? I did, yes, yeah, a couple of times. Did you get told about the gel or did you find it? And I was out? told about it. The, the, uh, well, the nurse at the hospital, or I think she was, not sure if she was a nurse, but she's in charge of all the yeah. prostate care. She's a and, urology and, nurse. Yeah, yeah. That's right. And yeah. she came in and she went through the whole kit with me. Great. And it was really, really good. Good. Because my dad couldn't sleep. And I now call it Ronnie's Rule. Make sure, because his name's Ron, make sure that you know that you have this little kit of numbing gel. It's just called lignocaine. You can get it over the counter, even at chemists, if, you, if you somewhat don't have it. But it was a difference for my dad between sleeping or not sleeping and coping and not coping. So really important that these little tips are known because we want to make this whole thing less yeah. scary, less painful, less fearful. Yeah. We had a bit of a chat and pretty much this is the reason we decided to do this podcast today. Your, your mates are scared about even getting tested. Why do you think that is, Presley? Uh, well, I think well, most guys don't want to have someone stick their stick a finger up their bums to start with. Yeah. Uh, but I've had it done quite a few times over the year because I've had you know other bowel problems and that, and I didn't find it uncomfortable at all because the doctor's well gelled up. He wears a rubber glove. Yeah. And uh, it's all over and done within a matter of seconds anyway. Mm. And 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 one of the things is that in Australia at least we recognise that men were very fearful of this procedure it's called the digital rectal examination we actually now know that the digital rectal examination only picks up the a small part of the prostate so there's a lot it's the posterior part at the back we can't feel the prostate cancers at the front and we now know that only about 10 percent of prostate cancers are picked up from the digital rectal exam or the finger test so to make men less fearful of going the australian urological society recommends to do a blood test, so the PSA blood test, and the Prostate Cancer Foundation does as well from the age of 40 if there's been a family history, or 50 for every other man. Personally, and some of the surgeons I work with, we think it's ideal to have everyone tested from about 40, any family history 35, because we've had patients in their 30s. Um, and it's just a blood test now. The PSA is the prostate-specific antigen, and that gives us an idea of whether or not your PSA blood reading is at the level appropriate to your age. If it's higher for your age than it should be, we repeat the test one month later. Things that can increase the PSA are any sexual activity, orgasm, in the previous 48 hours before or masturbation, a bike ride, because compression of a bike seat can raise the PSA, and I think alcohol. So it's important to know whether or not there was an elevated reading because of something like that. So we leave it one month to settle down and then we check it again. And if it's high, we go, right, better go and see a urologist. The urologist will organise an MRI. It's called a multiparametric MRI, which can scan the prostate. He sees you with an M with a digital examination 
and then he can ask the radiologist to more specifically focus on an area of the prostate. And then we, we get the digital rectal exam, the PSA and the MRI reading. We can now then go and do what's called a targeted transperineal biopsy. So we can work out exactly where we think the cancer is. And you went through all those processes, do you remember? I did, yes. Was any of them painful or? No, none, none whatsoever. Yeah, were they yeah. scary? Uh, I wouldn't say scary. It's just it's something new that you haven't done before. Yeah. So you are a little bit concerned, but uh, yeah, I wouldn't say scary and very painless. It's all over and done within minutes. Yes. And and Melissa talks about um, men being really shocked when they orgasm for the first time after their even their biopsy because there can be a lot of blood. Do you remember anything like that happening for you? Well, I haven't had an orgasm. So, so this was between the biopsy and the surgery. Oh, sorry, oh, sorry. Um, yes, there was a, just a little bit the first time. Okay, but not too alarming for you. Oh no, well, um, I was expecting it. Okay, cool. So again, Presley was educated and expecting it. Other men are not told, and they think, "Oh my God," because unlike Presley, they can have a lot of blood loss, and it can be actually bright red to dark brown because it depends on how long the blood's been sitting there. So it's a, freak, it's a freaky thing for someone to suddenly, who never normally bleeds, have blood coming out of his penis. Women are different. We have blood coming out of our, you know, mm. private parts every month. So we're used mm. to that. Mm. So this can be the whole fearful cycle um, of what we're trying to break down with this conversation. Now, I'd like to just move a bit into your history. The first time I met you, and I'm going to go from these notes, is you were very open with me that you'd had a, previous um mental health issues and this is yes. why we're also introducing this into our podcast today but that was you know all part of our initial conversation we didn't go into great detail about that but you did come back and see me uh a month later that was the 25th of january the day before australia day and on that day you'd already had that op uh, opportunity to move from a open surgeon to a robotic you were very stressed and I noticed that you were shaking, that you had quite visible like tremors. Yes, I Could you tell much. us a little bit about, Presley, your mental health background just to help other guys hear your story? Right. Uh, during my, uh, was it on 16, 68 now, when I was, I think it was about 45, I found out my wife was sleeping around with all my friends and neighbours. You know, mm. she was you know, wasn't a really nice woman. So then, uh, so that was my start of my anxiety and depression. Uh, after she left, uh, I still suffered and I was virtually medicated on, on low doses of antidepressants for, for quite a few years. Some, sometimes I'd go on, sometimes I'd come off them. And then uh, it was about two and a half years ago to three years ago, I had a mental breakdown. So I worked with this guy for about 10 years and he was a, just a well, he was just a bit of a pig. That's mm. all I can say about yeah. him. And uh, so after the breakdown, well, then I went on to a higher dose of um, antidepressants. And uh, so I've always ended up having like bad body tremors. Mm. And uh, like even now, as I'm talking to you, I'm finding my arms starting to shake. Is that because it's... Uh... A resting shake, or it's a bit anxiety provoking our conversation. It, it's just anxiety, I suppose, sure. like bringing up the past. Yeah. Uh, where I, I've always sort of just try and put that out of my mind. It's yeah. it's gone. Yeah. You know, just try and forget about it, clear the brain. Yeah. And just move on. Yeah. 
but uh, it still comes back. Yeah, and your your shakes were absolutely visible. Like um, it was like there was an epileptic seizure going on, but it was yeah. all in your abdomen. But yeah. I don't see any of that in you today, and I haven't seen it for months. Well, it is actually happening at the moment. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. Just slightly. Just slightly. So we'll move on from that. But what I wanted to share was that Presley had some erectile dysfunction pre-existing because of the medication. Melissa is very, very um, on top of that. So there's certain medications that are better for minimising the sexual dysfunction. Did you do you mind talking about that a little bit before yeah, sure. the prostate surgery? Oh yeah, yeah no, yeah. that's that's easy. Yeah. yeah. So what what did what did the medication? So they helped your anxiety and your depression, but they impacted yeah. on your sexual function. Yes, within two weeks of taking the first uh, dose, uh, I just couldn't get erections anymore. What was that one that you were on? It was called Pristique. Okay. Did you get warned that that would happen? No. No. But uh, every time I get something from the doctors, I've always gone home and Googled it. Okay. And you, you get there and you find out there's two pages worth of side effects. Yeah. But the, but the thing is, your doctor recommended it, so, well, you take it. Mm. So you totally trust your doctor. Of course. So I've got an, um, a little form here. I'm just going to dig it out. Hopefully you'll come up quickly. Yes. Thank goodness. It's called the Erection Hardness School. Could you tell me, if you could reflect on that, I'll just read out the numbers. It's number one, grade one, is penis is larger but not hard. Number two, this is with stimulation, the penis is hard but not hard enough for sexual penetration. Grade three is hard enough for penetration but not completely hard. Number four is completely hard and fully rigid. Now, this is actually the International Validated Erection Hardness Score Test, a self-assessment tool used in Viagra clinical studies. But there's one question it doesn't ask, which all my patients therefore can't do this for. It's no erection, no hardness. So I put a zero there. So what I just would like to ask you, Presley, is before you started Prestique, where do you think your sexual function was in those grades? I was somewhere between two and three. Two and three, and you're about 43? 40, yes, yeah, 43. Yeah. And so when you started the prestige, so two and three is hard, but not hard enough for yeah. penetration, or hard, but not completely hard. Yeah. So somewhere between two and three. What happened after two weeks of taking the um, prestige? Uh, I went down to zero. So the, just, you just it, no erection at all, just not interested. So you lost your libido? Lost or you, libido, yeah. Did you lose the mechanics of erection? Uh, I think it's just lost lost the libido. No, no interest, couldn't be bothered. Okay. All right. And then how long did you stay on, did you have that issue for? Um, well, well, after that, I stayed single for about for five or six years. Okay. You know, I couldn't be bothered going out with women, couldn't be bothered chasing them, you know. It's just... A mood what, thing, yeah. Yeah, it just, just couldn't be bothered. It was just all too hard. Mm hmm uh, but then I, I was getting erections and I was pretty yep. sort of, they got better up to about three, between three and four. Okay, yeah. And uh, st started on with a new partner, I think it was about seven years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but the erections were never really good. They were sort of, you know, still around about the three or four. So moving from zero to two to three to three to three to four. So that's actually... Quite good. It, it did improve, but yeah. it never got to what it was, you know, when like when I when I was younger, I, I could get an erection, but it wasn't sort of you know rock hard, or I'd get halfway through sex and then the interest would wane, yeah. and then it'd sort of just go down and I'd slip out. 
Okay. And were you on Prestique the whole time then? No, no. So you went off uh, it and went, then you improved. Would it I, take long for the erectum, erectus to yes. improve? Uh, well, the doctor put me on to another one called Levitra. Levitra, yeah. Which, which made me feel very sick and nauseous. Levitra is a, sorry, I'm talking about the uh, prescription drugs for depression. Yeah. You still on Prestique throughout oh, this time? No, no, he took me off that and yeah. I've been on Symbolta ever since. And so Melissa talks about Symbolta as being one that doesn't impact on the sexual function anywhere right. near the amount. Yes. Would you agree with that? I do, yeah. Great. Yeah. So then you've been on Symbolta. Yep. And then you, to help you have better sexual function, you were given Levitra, which Levitra. is of the Viagra family. Yes. A PD5 inhibitor. Yeah. Did, did that help you much? No, all it did was make me feel nauseous. It, every time I got an erection and was sort of lying down on top of my partner, felt like I was going to throw up all the time. I kept on getting a vomit. So that's not so good for the mood and no, the desire? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> What about other ones? Like there's four, there's Viagra. How did that go for you? No, I found I used to get a very bad headache with that. Mm. And then uh, in the end I was on uh, Cialis. Yeah. And that, but that was paying $80 for four tablets. Oh, gosh, yes. So I thought, no, that's ridiculous. I'd rather not have sex at all than yeah. do that. And so then I just sort of abstained from that. And I think it was, you know, when I went to this about seven years ago, he put me on Symbolta. Uh, uh, that's yeah. right. But a very low dose dosage, about 30 milligrams. Okay. And you're still on that dose today? No, I've had to go up to 60. Okay. Yeah. Because, um, I've, my anxiety has come back a bit more because not not because after my prostate, not being able to work, not being able to have sex, mm. it, it just sort of it does worry you, but it does. It's always in the back of your mind. Yeah. And what sort of work do you do, Presley? Um, building maintenance. Building maintenance. Have yeah. you gone back to that at all? It's been now ten months since you said. Uh, no, it's been sorry, twenty second. April, May, June, July, August, September, October. It's now eight months since your surgery, eight and a half months. Um, on and off. I had good days and bad days. Some days I, I couldn't get out of bed. Other days you know, I can get up. Um, I've been seeing a naturopath and that, that has sort of actually started to help me a lot better. And I've actually had days now where I feel absolutely normal like yeah. I was, you know, 10, 20 years ago. Wonderful. Uh, but the thing is, I just find that I can't do any heavy work anymore. I just pick and choose my little jobs here and there. Let's go to how you were post-operatively. Right. What I want to know is that you had a pretty tough time initially. There was a lot of leakage. Yeah. Can you tell us about how that time was for you? And I'll go back to your notes and refer to that too. Right. I, I just found it uh, annoying because uh, going to work, you know, I had to have the big pads in, uh, even though I was just doing small jobs, but being a, a carpenter, like you're up and down ladders uh, or you're kneeling and standing, kneeling and standing, every time I moved my position, I found that I was leaking. And I'd always have to take two or three spare pairs of underwear and or like a, like a change of clothes all the time. Okay. And, and uh, that was just, just annoying. And I think that got in, into my brain as well. And I thought, oh, I'm just sort of, I don't want to go outside somewhere and just piss myself. Yeah. So I just stopped working. Okay. Well, God, I'm going to go back through the notes mm -hmm. now. So you had the operation on the 22nd of March. Right. I saw you post up the 5th of April. Yep. Now, you had done three months prep work, yep. but you leaked a lot. You had lots 
of times where you're wearing double pads, you're putting flat pants and pads inside, you're getting up three times a night, you hardly had anything flowing out. You're wearing five level three pads a day. The biggest ones, they each hold 450. And um, you had, uh, you reported to me that you thought of all the fluid you were drinking, you, about 70% was going into the pad right. and 30% into the toilet. So you were leaking a lot. Yes. Your pathology was good. You had the prostate cancer was contained. It was considered a small aggressive tumour. So the cancer side, it was actually very successful. Um, I was very concerned about you because of your history of depression and I didn't want you to spiral downwards. So you asked me if you could start surfing and I said, you've got to wait another couple of weeks, Presley. Um, I actually showed you a penile clamp. At that time, you weren't very keen. But you came back two weeks later and then we talked about how things were going. You did the typical pathway where you said, oh, night's a lot better now. I've got a dry pad at night and I get it twice a night. You said that you're using six pads a day and you're putting your hands on your penis to self-clamp to get to the toilet. So I said, how about we try the penile clamp and this time you are more open to it. This was now four weeks post-op. And I also said, now you can start riding your bike gently on a flat track, not up and down hills, that you could do continue your walking and that we could start some squats, some planks, some sit-ups from the... Uh, recovery mat book you also had no longer had to wear the double pads and the pants so in my opinion you were well on your way to improving and that was one month post-op any comments on that time uh no not really you've spot on there yeah i mean it was it was like it's hard at the beginning but i could see a difference every day and it depends if it depends on what I was doing. Like I went out for dinner one night and, and I was drinking wine and alcohol and stuff. Well, I knew I was going to leak more the following day and at night. So I'd have to wear a double pad when I went to sleep. Good. So, so that's a great precautionary thing that you learned to do. I did. And I say to everyone, if you want to be a normal human and go out for a few drinks, that's okay. But know that the next 24 hours it might set you back a little bit. But it's not going to be to your detriment long term. We have to live life. We do. We have to celebrate. We have we have birthdays. Yeah. We have we want to forget about this. The clamp actually enables you to forget about it. And the clamp is a bit of a lifesaver. I have many men actually tell me it saved their lives literally because they had the dignity to go out without pissing in their pants. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, not knowing where to put pads and things like that. Around this time, I saw you and it was six weeks post-op. You'd been to see the sexual health person. You told me you'd had a chance to try Viagra. You'd had a very poor reaction to that. In fact, made you feel very depressed and even suicidal. This is not something I've encountered before. Do you remember that time? I, I do, yeah. 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 I, I suppose it, it's because you're taking something to give you an erection, but it's not working. Oh, and, my gosh, and, yeah. And, you know, and you're lying with your partner next to you in bed, and the, the, the only thing you really want to do is make love to her. Yeah. And, and you know you can't. And yeah. it's just so frustrating. And it's like it, it does get into your head that you feel like, or well, being a male, that, you know, you want to be uh, well, satisfying your partner, but, you know, you, you just can't. And, you know, that's such a lovely insight, Presley, because I often ask men, I've only been asking this recently, when it, are you wanting to have sex for you or are you wanting to have sex for any other reason? And every time I ask, it's all about, to fulfill my partner, for my partner, 
that makes me feel like a man, making my wife or my partner, yeah. you know, complete, you know, and even if they can't ejaculate, but they can get an erection, that's also a sense of failure. Yes, yeah. And once you have a sense of failure associated with your sexual functioning, we know that men mentally spiral down. In fact, there's a 72% increased risk of suicide simply by having right. a prostate cancer diagnosis. So what you say is bang on the money. Mm. Um, and you can't bang, isn't that a ring? Well, you, you just don't feel like a proper male. Mm. I suppose it's like a woman who has her um, uterus and everything taken out, has a full hysterectomy. They don't feel like a woman. Well, they have the breasts removed for cancer. You're right. They, they don't feel womanly. Yeah. They don't feel feminine. And how's your partner dealt with all of this? She's not here. How's she supported you and how have you found her in interactions, I guess? I just cannot complain. She has been just 100% perfect. She, well, she knows my penis doesn't work. I mean, we can have a kiss and a cuddle. I mean, I, I can do manual sex on her if I want or, or I can use my tongue. Yeah. You know, there's other ways you can make <laughs> love to a person. You know, it's, it's yeah. not just penis to vagina. There's other ways you can pleasure each other. Just on that, Presley, those words were also said by my beloved, dearest friend, Patrick Lombroso, who sadly passed away with the uh, glioblastoma brain tumour on September 11th, 2017. So Patrick Lombroso, we have episodes 50, 55 and 61, the Patrick Lombroso trilogy. So Patrick was a men's health specialist psychologist with a business in Sydney called Man Focus Psychology. If you listen to his three hours that he let me record before he passed away, he did not hold back. He knew he had a 5% chance of surviving 12 months. He even said in the podcast, if only I had the opportunity to be diagnosed with prostate cancer, then I'd have at least a 97% chance of living five years. He was 51 when he died. I'm 51 talking to you. And uh, he talks about exactly what Presley just said. Use your tongue. Don't hold back. There's many ways you can satisfy your partner. You know, don't don't hesitate to have more conversations. Talk to your partner in a way, male, female, whatever. It's a chance to connect emotionally. That's correct. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I'm first year turned into a male lesbian, <laughs> so it's yeah. Wow. All right. Well, what I want to do now is just bring us to today right today is 10 months and 10 days since i first mm. met you nine months almost since you had your surgery almost long enough to make a baby actually right. yes you could have made could a baby, baby in this time lots of women have babies at 37 weeks yeah. <laughs> including me my first one how are you today we're gonna speed I'm forward i'm really good uh, with all the other work I've been, been doing and exercising and stuff, I, I just feel really good. And um, I've actually been to a naturopath and that, been on that sort of stuff. And my doctor's got me on huge doses of vitamin B at the moment, which has sort of picked up my, um, oh, what can I say, my libido. I want to get yeah. out there and I want to find... And your drive. Your, drive. I've got my your, drive Your back. thirst for uh, your so, desires. So I lost my mojo, I suppose, over mm. the last year. And um, even now, I just want to go surfing every day. I want to go and do a small job every day. Right. You know, I want to get out and do gardening. I actually want to renovate this place. So I might have to hire you um, to help okay. me out a little bit. A little, a little bit <laughs> out of date here and there. We'll talk about that yeah. later. Okay. Um, 
you know, Mojo was something I lost during COVID actually, because I was interacting with people face to face. I get my energy from being with people. I love going to football game with 50,000 people. I love the roar of the crowd. When we were locked away and I couldn't even talk to patients or be, I mean, I could talk to them over the phone, but I lost my mojo too. Mm. And I found that a real struggle. But what's happened with you, Presley, is you came to see me on the 23rd of June. I'll just put the perspective of my bit. You were getting better down to one pad a day from six or seven. By the time you got to August 18th, you were not wearing pads at night. You were about to go on a seven-week holiday to the Isle of Wight and you came back and you were good and you just started working with your um, GP um, and big doses of vitamin B2, B2, as you mentioned to me. Uh, Then you come to today and what did you say to me when I walked in? How's your consonants going? How's your pads worse going? Mm. What did you say? Uh, good, I don't use any. None and you all. said the day I last saw you? Yeah, as, as I walked out and went home, I took my last pad out. And that was it. I said, oh, that's it. I'm going to give this a go. I'm going to go commando. No, <laughs> no pads. And it's worked. I do have a little bit of, well, I suppose, dripping every now and again. Like when I come into the cold weather, cold winds, that I have a little, I can feel it coming down. Or if I'm out in the garden, I'm standing and squatting. Well, then I know my pelvic floor releases a little bit. But it's nothing to worry about. Just a drop here, drop there. Wonderful. And, and I, I can sort of gear up that. I can just do my clenches. Yeah, you're not getting up. Yeah. And I'm, I'm great. Okay. Now, we're going to finish this conversation in a moment. But because it is November, I want to teach males globally about the 601st muscle that they don't know they have so most men when I meet them don't even know they have a pelvic floor in fact I had a patient the other day ask me if I had a prostate so I realized that men don't really realize about anatomy so my international global message today is I want every male or every person born with male anatomy mm-hmm. their gender assigned male at birth is to one, know they have a pelvic floor, and two, to know the stop-start button. The stop-start button is to start the flow of urine and to stop the flow, and that's your continence control mechanism for urine. To squeeze the back passage is your continence control mechanism for bowel and wind continence. Now, I've got a little theory. In my PhD, I showed that we need to do six sets of pelvic floor exercises a day in standing in the time between diagnosis and surgery. Ideally, that would be five weeks. So week one, you get the diagnosis. Week six, you have the surgery. The urologists need to send their patients to a physio who knows about men's health at that point in time. If we get five or six weeks preoperative training, we can have three out of four men completely continent within 12 weeks of surgery and one in six men never leak. That was not Presley's case. He had some delayed prostate uh, sorry, delayed consonants recovery, but that's okay because we're here now eight months later and he's been pad free for two months. So it was, he took six months. Now, what I want every man to do and to understand is you have an extra muscle in your body called the pelvic floor. It's number 601. Number two, I want you to know the stop-start button is to start the flow of urine and then stop make that mental connection and the physical connection. Look at it. 
If it's not stopping, you've got to practice your pelvic floor. We need to do one set of slow twitch fibres and, sorry, one set should be slow twitch fibres, so, so lift and hold the pelvic floor or nuts to guts, and then 10 quick ones from this day forward so that every man remembers. I want to translate my research to the everyday bladder habit. I want from now on, you Presley, when you get the urge to empty your bladder to lift and hold your pelvic floor till you get there. If you're someone that's leaking, try and do that with about 30 to 50% of effort, not too much pressure, not too hard. Walk to the toilet for as long as you can, holding your pelvic floor. When you get to the toilet, I want you to start that flow of urine and stop, but only once a day, the morning one. The one there where your blood is, should be at its best because it's got the most in it. Do your wee. At the end of each wee, I want you to do the 10 rapid nuts to guts contractions because your prostate used to push it out without it being there. You can't empty properly. A very common thing is to have something called post-void dribble. So we do the long one as we walk to the loo. We link it with the bladder signal. We get to the loo. We start and stop just once a day. We do our pee, we empty, we do 10 quick ones to empty. And even Professor Gray's story, the founding physiotherapist of this work, showed research that said men will get twice as much urine out of their bladders versus doing something called urethral milking if they just do the pelvic floor. So that's six times a day on average, most men will go to the loo. Six times a day is what I proposed in my pre-PhD to be the required number in standing. As you walk to the toilet, you're standing. That's the difference. We need to build that muscle up. I also don't want it to be another thing on a long list of things to do every day. So if we link the pelvic floor exercise with the actual habit that we already have to have, everybody will be prehabilitated. Every man will have preparation. What do you think of my idea? I think it's fantastic. You really need to do it in advance. You can't just start after surgery. You have to prepare for it. And one in four men will get prostate cancer right. in their lifetime if they live to 85. Yes. Yep. And one in two men will get prostate cancer if anyone else in their life yep. actually has prostate cancer. So they're, ma they're male, mm -hmm. first-line generation, father, brother, cousin. How many people in your family have had um, prostate cancer? Well, I'm the fourth. You're the fourth. Okay. Out of how many sons? Well, the four boys. All four. All four. Four out of four. Yeah, that's right. We don't need to say any more than that, everybody. And I served with six guys and four out of the six have had it as well. Two-thirds of the people, you know. Yeah. Why did you want to do this chat with me today? Uh, well, I just found that a lot of guys out there are just too frightened. They just push this information behind them. They don't want to know about it. They don't want to lose their sexual function. And they're just too well, shit scared to go to the doctor and ask about it. And uh, well, as soon as you start your... Um, Notice that your urine flow is slowing down. You should go to the doctor straight away. Don't wait and wait until something gets bigger. I was lucky because I had my prostate out and all the cancer was enclosed, uh, where if you wait and wait, it can actually go through the wall and get into the rest of your body and well, you could die. So it's pretty simple. Just go and get it done. And that is the most important message yeah. of Movember. Men, stop and scan. Get to know your body. Don't wait until you're having a heart attack before you go, I better address that chest pain I've had for four years. Don't wait till your penis is bent and you can't have sex anymore. If you get a little, you know, tiny change and it feels, feels like something's wrong, do something about it. 
you've got responsibility to your children, your partners, to also educate them. They want you around. They want you to be a grandfather. They want you to walk them down the aisle. There's really a lot more you can do to overcome your fear by making that simple decision to go to the doctor and get an annual checkup. You have a big responsibility to all the other people in your life to be here for them. And don't be scared to get a finger up the bum because that's not even a recommendation anymore. Mm, that's great. Presley, anything more to say? Just go and do it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's no, just look after your health. Don't, don't be too masculine. <laughs>